Part three, chapter fifty four of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Three Evil Things. One. In my dream, in my last morning dream, I stood today on a promontory. Beyond the world, I held a pair of scales and weighed the world. Alas, that the rosy dawn came too early to me. She glowed me awake, the jealous one. Jealous is she always of the glows of my morning dream. Measurable by him who hath time, weighable by a good weigher, attainable by strong pinions, divinable by divine nutcrackers, thus did my dream find the world. My dream, a bold sailor, half ship, half hurricane, silent as the butterfly, impatient as the falcon, how had it the patience and leisure to-day for world-weighing? Did my wisdom perhaps speak secretly to it, my laughing wide-awake day wisdom, which mocketh at all infinite worlds? For it saith, where force is, there becometh number the master, it hath more force. How confidently did my dream contemplate this finite world, not new-fangledly, not old-fangledly, not timidly, not entreatingly, as if a big round apple presented itself to my hand, a ripe golden apple with a coolly soft velvety skin. Thus did the world present itself unto me. As if a tree nodded unto me, a broad-branched, strong-willed tree, curved as a recline in a footstool for weary travellers, thus did the world stand on my promontory. As if delicate hands carried a casket toward me, a casket open for the delectation of modest, adoring eyes, Thus did the world present itself before me to-day. Not riddle enough to scare human love from it, not solution enough to put to sleep human wisdom. A humanly good thing was the world to me to-day, of which such bad things are said. How I thank my morning dream that I thus at to-day's dawn weighed the world. As a humanly good thing did it come unto me, this dream and heart-comforter, and that I may do the like by day, and imitate and copy its best, now will I put the three worst things on the scales, and weigh them humanly well. He who taught to bless taught also to curse. Where are the three best cursed things in the world? These will I put on the scales. Voluptuousness, passion for power, and selfishness. These three things have hitherto been best cursed, and have been in worst and falsest repute. These three things will I weigh humanly well. Well, here is my promontory, and there is the sea. It rolleth hither unto me, shaggily and fawnily, 
the old faithful hundred-headed dog monster that i love well here will i hold the scales over the weltering sea and also a witness do i choose to look on thee the anchorite tree thee the strong-odored broad arch tree that i love on what bridge goeth the now to the hereafter by what constraint doth the high stoop to the low and what enjoineth even the highest still to grow upwards now stand the scales poised and at rest three heavy questions have i thrown in three heavy answers carrieth the other scale two voluptuousness unto all hair-shirted despisers of the body a sting and stake and cursed as the world by all backworldsmen for it mocketh and befooleth all erring misinferring teachers voluptuousness to the rabble the slow fire at which it is burnt to all wormy wood to all stinking rags the prepared heat and stew furnace voluptuousness to free hearts a thing innocent and free the garden happiness of the earth all the future's thanks overflow to the present voluptuousness only to the withered a sweet poison to the lion willed however the great cordial and the reverently saved wine of wines voluptuousness the great symbolic happiness of a higher happiness and highest hope for to many is marriage promised and more than marriage to many that are more unknown to each other than man and woman and who hath fully understood how unknown to each other are man and woman voluptuousness but i will have hedges around my thoughts and even around my words lest swine and libertine should break into my gardens passion for power the glowing scourge of the hardest of the heart hard the cruel torture reserved for the cruelest themselves the gloomy flame of living pyres passion for power the wicked gadfly which is mounted on the vainest peoples the scorner of all uncertain virtue which rideth on every horse and on every pride passion for power the earthquake which breaketh and upbreaketh all that is rotten and hollow the rolling rumbling punitive demolisher of white sepulchres the flashing interrogative sign beside premature answers passion for power before whose glance man creepeth and croucheth and drudgeth and becometh lower than the serpent and the swine until at last great contempt crieth out of him passion for power the terrible teacher of great contempt which preacheth to their face to cities and empires away with thee until a voice crieth out of themselves away with me passion for power 
which, however, mounteth alluringly even to the pure and lonesome, and up to self-satisfied elevations glowing like a love that painteth purple felicities alluringly on earthly heavens. Passion for power. But who would call it passion, when the height longeth to stoop for power? Verily, nothing sick or diseased is there in such longing and descending. That the lonesome height may not for ever remain lonesome and self-sufficing, that the mountains may come to the valleys and the winds of the heights to the plains. Oh, who could find the right prenomen and honoring name for such longing? Bestowing virtue, thus did Zarathustra once name the unnameable. And then it happened also, and verily it happened for the first time, that his word blessed selfishness, the wholesome, healthy selfishness, that springeth from the powerful soul. From the powerful soul, to which the high body appertaineth, the handsome, triumphing, refreshing body around which everything becometh a mirror, the pliant, persuasive body, the dancer whose symbol and epitome is the self-enjoying soul. Of such bodies and souls the self-enjoyment calleth itself virtue. With its words of good and bad doth such self-enjoyment shelter itself as with sacred groves. With the names of its happiness doth it banish from itself everything contemptible. Away from itself doth it banish everything cowardly. It saith, Bad, that is cowardly. Contemptible seem it to the ever-solicitous, the sighing, the complaining, and whoever pick up the most trifling advantage. It despiseth also all bittersweet wisdom. For verily, there is also wisdom that bloometh in the dark, a nightshade wisdom which ever sigheth, all is vain. Shy distrust is regarded by it as base, and every one who wanteth oaths instead of looks and hands, also all over distrustful wisdom, for such is the mode of cowardly souls. Baser still it regardeth the obsequious, doggish one, who immediately lieth on his back, the submissive one. And there is also wisdom that is submissive and doggish and pious and obsequious. Hateful to it altogether, and a loathing is he who will never defend himself. He who swalloweth down poisonous spittle and bad looks the all-too-patient one, the all-endurer, the all-satisfied one, for that is the mode of slaves. Whether they be servile before gods and divine spurnings, or before men and stupid human opinions, at all kinds of slaves doth it spit this blessed selfishness. Bad. Thus doth it call all that is spirit-broken and sordidly servile, 
constrained, blinking eyes, depressed hearts, and the false submissive style which kisseth the broad, cowardly lips. And spurious wisdom, so doth it call all the wit that slaves and hoary-headed and weary ones affect, and especially all the cunning, spurious-witted, curious-witted foolishness of priests. The spurious wise, however, all the priests, the world-weary, and those whose souls are of feminine and servile nature. Oh, how hath their game all along abused selfishness! And precisely that was to be virtue and was to be called virtue, to abuse selfishness. And selfless, so did they wish themselves with good reason, all those world-weary cowards and cross-spiders. But to all those cometh now the day, the change, the sword of judgment, the great noontide. Then shall many things be revealed. And he who proclaimeth the ego wholesome and holy, and selfishness blessed, Verily, he, the prognosticator, speaketh also what he knoweth. Behold, it cometh, it is nigh, the great noontide. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Nietzsche is here completely in his element. Three things hitherto best cursed and most calumniated on earth are brought forward to be weighed. Voluptuousness, thirst of power, and selfishness, the three forces in humanity which Christianity has done most to garble and besmirch, Nietzsche endeavors to reinstate in their former places of honor. Voluptuousness, or sensual pleasure, is a dangerous thing to discuss nowadays. If we mention it with favor, we may be regarded, however unjustly, as the advocate of savages, satyrs, and pure sensuality. If we condemn it, we either go over to the Puritans, or we join those who are wont to come to the table with no edge to their appetites, and who therefore grumble at all good fare. There can be no doubt that the value of healthy, innocent voluptuousness like the value of health itself, must have been greatly discounted by all those who, resenting their inability to partake of this world's goods, cried like St. Paul, quote, I would that all men were even as I myself. End quote. Now, Nietzsche's philosophy might be called an attempt at giving back to healthy and normal men innocence and a clean conscience in their desires, not to applaud the vulgar sensualists who respond to every stimulus and whose passions are out of hand, not to tell the mean, selfish individual whose selfishness is a pollution, see aphorism 33 in Twilight of the Idols, that he is right, nor to assure the weak, the sick, and the crippled that the thirst of power which they gratify by exploiting the happier and healthier individuals is justified. But to save the clean, healthy man from the values of those around him, who look at everything through the mud that is their own bodies, 
to give him, and him alone, a clean conscience in his manhood, and the desires of his manhood. Quote, Do I counsel you to slay your instincts? I counsel to innocence in your instincts. End quote. In verse 7 of the second paragraph, as in verse 1 of paragraph 19 in the Old and New Tables, Nietzsche gives us a reason for his occasional obscurity. See also verses 3 to 7 of Poets. As I have already pointed out, his philosophy is quite esoteric. It can serve no purpose with the ordinary, mediocre type of man. I, personally, can no longer have any doubt that Nietzsche's only object in that part of his philosophy where he bids his friends stand beyond good and evil with him was to save higher men, whose growth and scope might be limited by the too strict observance of modern values from foundering on the rocks of a compromise between their own genius and traditional conventions. The only possible way in which the great man can achieve greatness is by means of exceptional freedom, the freedom which assists him in experiencing himself. Verses 20 to 30 afford an excellent supplement to Nietzsche's description of the attitude of the noble type toward the slaves in aphorism 260 of the work Beyond Good and Evil. See also Note B. End of Part 3, Chapter 54, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.